Welcome to another episode of Outliers. I'm your host, Daniel Scrivener, and today we've got a blockbuster show for you. On Outliers, I decode what the top 1% of performers across industries have mastered and what they've learned along the way. In each episode, I dive deep to uncover the tools, habits, and ideas that we can all apply in our own lives. And today, I'm talking to Dylan Taylor. In 2019, PitchBook named him one of the top 10 investors in space and space technology. While SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and Blue Origin have taken off in recent years, Dylan's been investing in outer space for over a decade, first as an angel and now as CEO of Voyager Space Holdings, where he's building the Berkshire Hathaway of space holding companies. And that's not even scratching the tip of the iceberg, as Dylan's also served as the CEO of a public company, he's been on numerous boards, and he runs his own space-focused nonprofit called Space for Humanity. Dylan is a wealth of wisdom, and this episode is a masterclass on the past, present, and future of outer space. Please enjoy this incredible conversation with Dylan Taylor. Dylan, I am so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Outliers. Thank you, Daniel. It's my pleasure. My pleasure, my honor to be here. You know, we're in throughout the course of this episode, we're going to do a super deep dive into space technology and the space sector in general and what that is shaping up to look like and what you're building at Voyager Space Holdings. So there's a lot we're going to cover. But what I wanted to do to maybe set a little bit of context for everybody is just take a little bit of a step back and if you could help share a little bit of how you first got interested in space and how that fascination has kind of changed and evolved over time. Sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'd love to. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like a lot of folks, perhaps, that have had some success in whatever endeavor they set out to do originally, I found myself in a situation probably in my late 30s, uh, I'm 49 now, where I was kind of looking around saying, okay, I've had some success in the business world. I've set out and achieved a lot of the things I, I thought I wanted to achieve in my career, but I was left wanting, to be honest about it, Daniel. And I was really looking around saying, okay, is this, is this it? You know, what's the purpose of all, all of this? And I had a very influential book that I read at that time. I don't know if you ever read uh, The Last Lecture. No. It's definitely worth reading, and I won't spoil it for you or the audience. Uh, it's actually an actual lecture you can watch on YouTube as well. But essentially what it challenges you to do is is really probe your psyche and in particular kind of the early years of your life and, and really reflect on what, what are you truly passionate about? What really you know creates that fire within you? And for me, it always had been, always had been space whether it's the thrill of the exploration of space or sort of the scientific discovery associated with space or kind of the heroic nature of space. It was really all those things kind of wrapped into, into one. And I had met uh, someone who was very influential in my life at the World Economic Forum, the meeting in Davos about this time, a, a gentleman named Eric Anderson. And Eric was notable in so far as he founded the company that allowed tourists to go to the International Space Station. And so Eric and I became close friends. And I told Eric, I said, look, I've had this realization that I'm super passionate about space. I really want to get plugged into the industry. What would you suggest? How could you help me fulfill that? And essentially, what we came up with was the industry really was plugged or blocked, for lack of a better word, at the early stage capital formation 
of the capital life cycle. In other words, companies just weren't getting formed. This is sort of 2008, 2009, and there wasn't a lot of early stage capital available. So long story short, I reflected on, okay, I want to get plugged into the space industry. I'm super passionate about it. And I, I always approach things from the vantage point of what skill set can I bring to the table and how can I add value? And so in discussing it with Eric and others, we determined, you know, the industry really needs that early stage capital. And then with respect, I'll, I'll say this, I don't mean this to sound uh, negative or condescending, but at that time and, and still today, this persists, space is really exemplified by super brilliant technical minds, but not necessarily folks that have a lot of uh, business experience or business acumen. And so the thought was, can I bring some early stage capital to play? Can I bring some business acumen? Because I, I had some experience running large global companies. Can I bring that to the fold in, in let's say, a, a business mentorship arrangement and add some value to the industry? So that, that's how I initially got involved. And just the more I got involved in the industry, the more my passion really was validated and ultimately have moved into the industry full time. But there were several years where I was kind of bridging that gap between you know, my true passion and really sort of my day job, for lack of a, a better term. No, that makes that makes sense. You mentioned I I know this about you that you're just fascinated by and captivated by space. Is there a defining moment early in your life? Was there something that just kind of hooked you and grabbed you early on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've reflected on that question a lot. I think there are two answers to that. The first is my earliest memory of space was actually with my father, who has a technical background. He's actually a college professor. PhD and multiple degrees in, in math and engineering and science. But my earliest memory is watching Star Trek with him. I was probably three. So it would have been, I guess, 1973. But I do remember that. I just remember the, the awe and wonder of sort of the undiscovered. Mm-hmm. And so I think fundamentally for me, it's really that exploration discovery piece. But then later in my life, you know, I got deeply into meditation. And sort of the, you know, just again, this is the notion of discovery, discovering the mind, discovering sort of the inner workings of, of how we think, how we reflect spiritual practices, things of that nature. It got deeply into meditation. And one of the things I observed or perceived was that space probably is, and I'll even say it, 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 it is definitively the most fundamental tool for transformation that humans are aware of. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is there's very few paradigms where you can get out of the fishbowl and reflect on the fact that you're a fish in the water, right? And uh, if you talk to astronauts, and I've had the pleasure to get to know many, in fact, we have several on, on the board of my company, to a person, you know, whether male or female, West or East, capitalist or communist, it it doesn't really matter. To a person, they reflect on how powerful space and that experience has been in in changing the way they they view the world, the way they view humanity. So I would say that the second sort of aha was that, you know, space really fundamentally is the way humans, humanity can deal with some of these problems, which we think are intractable or, you know, insolvable, 
are insoluble. And I think it's fundamentally because we lack perspective. And the way to get perspective, I mean, certainly you can send the world to meditation camp for a couple of months. That's not very practical. You know, some people believe in psychedelics as as a gateway. I I won't poo-poo that, but that's not necessarily for me. But I think the whole notion of space and this uh, so-called overview effect, which was coined by uh, author Frank White, I think it's very powerful. I think it's very powerful. And, And I think fundamentally the world, as we move into space and as we venture into the stars, I think we have the ability to reimagine what it means to be human. And my hope is that it's not just a copy paste of what we have. It's a reimagining of what we could be. Yeah. And it certainly seems like part of that could be just an evolution to seeing ourselves as an interconnected species, as opposed to a bunch of kind of warring, fighting, disagreeing, <laughs> trying to cooperate countries around the world. Indeed. And I think COVID, COVID's 2020 has been rough. COVID's been tough on everybody. But I think if nothing else, it's reminded us that we're, we're all in this together. There, mm-hmm. there is no other, there is no there that doesn't ultimately impact here. We're all joined at the hip. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about some of your earlier angel investing in the space technology space. And in 2019, I know PitchBook named you one of the top 10 investors in space technology, and that was over the previous 10 years, which is a remarkable feat, especially since at that time you were just, this was a passion for you, but you were just investing your own capital. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen the space evolve over the last 10 years and some of what those early investments looked like and and what you learned along the way and have you seen that evolve at, at all over the last 10 years? Yeah, no, I have. I mean, certainly the business plans have gotten way better, way more sophisticated. We now have some second and third generation entrepreneurs in the industry, people founding their second and third company. So that's all evolved over the last uh, 10 years. But in the very early days, you know, it really was, I don't know what the correct term would be, but I, I wrote some checks that I know I would never see the money back. And you, you would ask yourself, well, why would you do that, Dylan? You're not doing the industry any favors. And perhaps you could make that argument. But at the time, really what I was trying to do is I was trying to build confidence. And I was trying to build confidence in the industry that these business plans potentially could ultimately generate value. But more importantly, that the entrepreneurs, that their ideas had value, that the notion of entrepreneurialism, the notion of quitting your job at Lockheed Martin and giving it a go and maxing our credit cards out to bootstrap something had value. And I was trying to demonstrate that. And I was also trying to demonstrate other values that I think are important, uh, like female-led founders, which I think is critical. And I I went out of my way to try to back uh, female-led companies as well. So that's really what I was trying to do in the early days was shepherding along some of these individuals that just honestly needed a yes. (laughs) They just needed a yes. And Lo and behold, what I found was what ended up happening. You had these entrepreneurs who had been stuck in a rut for a long time or were on the verge of maybe throwing in the towel. And all of a sudden, they had a swagger to them. And they they had a sort of a near-term purpose on how to deploy that capital, what that next milestone would be. And of course, that energized me because as somebody who really enjoys mentorship, you know, seeing that spark in the team's eyes and and seeing them have the confidence, you know, to start to execute on their business plan and confidence breeds confidence. So really I was just trying to 
provide some kindling, if you will, for the industry and just get the industry off the ground and attract other angels to come into these more riskier ventures. Now, lo and behold, a lot of these early investments ended up being very good investments. But like with a lot of angel capital, it really is hit or miss. You know, I talk to folks uh, sometimes within the ecosystem saying, well, you know, I'm interested in angel investing. I'm thinking about making a couple of angel investments. And I tell them, I, I said, look, if your strategy is to make a couple of angel investments, I highly, <laughs> highly, highly recommend against that. Mm-hmm. Because unless you can make eight or nine or 10, uh, probably 10 minimum, no one on planet Earth is smart uh, that I've met. Maybe this person exists, but no one on planet Earth that I've met is smart enough to pick a single angel investment and be right with any level of certainty. Mm -hmm. The best teams fail, the worst teams succeed, and everything in between. So unless you take a portfolio approach, and unless you are smart about the way you structure your early stage deals, uh, for example, investing on or insisting on pro rata rights, where you can kind of double down on your winners, I think angel investing for most people is really foolhardy unless you take that approach. And so it is interesting, Daniel, at the end of the day, it ended up being a financial success, but I wouldn't have expected that at the time. And frankly, it wasn't really about that. It was more about getting the industry to a stage where other investors felt comfortable getting more involved. So that that's kind of how we, how we approached it. And then, you know, it's interesting, people at the time were lamenting the fact there wasn't enough VC within space. And of course, I'm trying to explain to, to folks, well, look, it's like salmon jumping upstream. The, the only way you're going to you know, get salmon upstream is to have lots and lots and lots of salmon jumping. And frankly, there's just no companies that have reached that stage of evolution. But thankfully, you know, we were able to get a lot of companies capitalized, the industry developed, and then we had companies like Sequoia and other very well-known VCs come into the industry, which has been great to see. Yeah, and it seems like lately there's just been a return of optimism around space. And I think, you know, I'm 34, but I don't have any vivid memories early in life of some of just some of the incredible accomplishments that happened a little bit earlier on. And so I'm I'm curious, have you felt that? Have you seen that? Was there an, an ebb where there just wasn't a lot going on? There was a little bit of a lack of optimism, clearly a little bit of a lack of private sector leadership. And it seems like that's now returning. But I'm, I'm curious, how optimism and pessimism and, and a little bit of that lull in terms of the just passion and excitement and mm-hmm. interest in space, how you've seen that play out over time. Right. Well, I think it's really exploded in the last, uh, that's probably the wrong verb, actually, but it's really <laughs> taken off. Maybe that's a better verb here in the last, you know, call it 36 months. I mean, SpaceX, I've got to give Elon and his team, Gwen in particular, the president of SpaceX Credit, they've really redefined and reimagined space and made it super exciting with their reusability. And and perhaps we can spend some time during the conversation talking about how transformational that is. But seeing boosters re-land on the pad has captivated everyone's imagination. Sending a Tesla Roadster on a Mars orbit has captured everyone's imagination. Sending humans, actual astronauts, you know, not on a Russian rocket, which we've been flying on for the last 12 years or, or longer, but a, 
U.S.-made commercial space vehicle to the International Space Station and returning them home safely, that's remarkable, right? That's remarkable. So I would say the number of inbound calls I've gotten from people I know who aren't necessarily following the space race on a daily basis saying, this is unbelievable, I'm inspired, I'm joyful, how do I buy SpaceX shares? You know, I mean, it's shocking, Daniel, how frequent that occurs now. So I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a renaissance right now for uh, space, not only in the U.S., but around the world. I mean, we had three Mars launches in the month of July, and one of those was by the UAE, you know, a small country, wealthy, but small country in the Middle East, doing a Mars mission. I think that's extraordinary. So we've got a lot of really fun and exciting things happening. And to your point, I think there was a period of time where the industry lacked self-confidence. We had some early failures, whether it was the the last space shuttle that ultimately killed the space shuttle program, or whether it was the Virgin Galactic Spaceship One that suffered a an accident of fatality. The fact that the U.S. in particular could not get astronauts to and from the space station without flying on Russian rockets. So I think there were a lot of these things that you could point to to say, you know, we're actually probably working backwards, not forwards in the space race. But that has all definitely changed. Yeah. And I would love to touch on what you highlighted there, because as soon as you brought up the reusability of rockets, immediately that starts to connect a bunch of dots about why we are seeing a renaissance, which is we've gone through what sounds like an awkward transition of space being something that only governments could have enough money and, and manpower and power in general to be able to invest in and push forward to now, obviously, technology's advanced. And now we are able to approach it much more economically and focus on things like the reusability of rockets in order to move it from something that almost has to be government-funded to something that now becomes something you can entertain in the private sector. Can you expand on that a little bit? And I guess, obviously, the the SpaceX and the reusable rockets is one example, but I'm sure you know many others, or you you can maybe help connect that to a little bit of a broader context about how you've seen those economics change over time. Right. Yeah, it it really is extraordinary, Daniel. So, I mean, imagine flying from Dubai to New York on Emirates on an Airbus 380 and at the end of that flight throwing the $420 million airplane away. Right. Imagine that. I mean, no one would be be able to afford to fly. Right. Even if you were a sheik, you wouldn't be able to, to fly. So and that's what we've been doing since the Apollo program. And I remember very vividly before SpaceX stuck their first booster landing, talking to a friend of mine who happens to be president of one of the large space primes with a launch capability and super smart guy. I've known him for years. And he said, Dylan, reusability is a fool's errand. It will never happen. And SpaceX is the laughing stock, and they're beating down the wrong path. And of course, about probably two months after that conversation, SpaceX stuck their first uh, booster landing. They've now done multiple booster landings on the same rocket. They've reflown booster rockets several times. And I think at last count, it's 51 of the last 53 attempts they've landed the booster rocket. So was that you know, individual not an intelligent person? Do they not understand physics? No, it wasn't that at all. It was classic sort of innovator's dilemma, right? You can't imagine 
sort of the disruptive power of forces outside of your soap bubble, for lack of a better word, or your bubble. And, and so what he lacked was not a knowledge of physics, but he lacked imagination. And he lacked an understanding of how iterative the MVP, the Silicon Valley kind of approach design can be or, or was. And so, you know, I'm fascinated by that because that's part of a larger theme happening in the industry is the industry is being disrupted by this new space revolution, if you will. But back to reusability, it's totally changed the game. So just to give you some round numbers, to fly a pound of mass on the space shuttle was $100,000. So imagine a bottle of water, which is sort of, by definition, uh, a pound, 16 ounces of water. It's $100,000 to orbit. Incredible. You know, with the Lockheed Martin and ULA rockets, you know, whether that's the Delta rocket or, or other vehicles that exist, that's sort of, you know, call it $10,000 a pound to orbit, round numbers. With what SpaceX has done and reusability and the like, we're down to call it $3,000 a pound on our way to $1,000 a pound. And with other technologies that we think we can roll out, we think we can get that number down to $500 a pound, ultimately, maybe not to fly humans, but certainly to fly hardware. So that's just a shocking increase in, in performance and decrease in cost. And so imagine New York, you know, if you were to look at a picture of Manhattan in 1910, roughly, what you would see is a fairly dense island with tallest building probably being about seven or eight stories. Fast forward to 1920, what would you see? Well, you would see a lot of mid-rise or early forms of the skyscraper. And why is that? Did we not know how to build tall buildings in 1910? Well, no, we did actually. We knew how to build tall buildings in 1910. We perfected that over time. But what really changed was the advent of the elevator. That's what changed. Mm-hmm. You know, people didn't want to walk 20 stories up to their <laughs> penthouse apartments. So space is very similar. We've built now the elevator. We can now get mass to orbit in quantity. We're going to launch, Daniel, more satellites in 2020 than the history of our civilization prior to 2020. And that's in the middle of a global pandemic. 2021 will set another record. You know, we'll put tens of thousands of pieces of hardware in orbit over the next 24 months. So it really has changed the game. It's enabled business plans that were only conceptual in nature prior to this launch revolution. And it's really captured the imagination. I had the pleasure of being at that Falcon Heavy launch in February of 2018. That's the one that had the Roadster on board. And seeing in person those two booster rockets land in synchronicity it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's science fiction and you're kind of rubbing your eyes saying, did I just see that happen? And of course the answer is yes. So it's tremendously exciting. And I think that's what's really captured the imagination. And, and, you know, at last count, I've heard that SpaceX is getting about 10,000 applications a month, 10,000 applications a month to work there. I mean, it's just shocking, shocking. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was, I think, the elevator analogy there is incredible. And in some ways, it seems like we've brought down the cost of raw ingredients to access space, to get things into space, to get to space. And so now we can start focusing more on what we do with that, how we layer on value and how we can ultimately create value and capture value with some of that technology. 
I'm much less close to the space than you are, but just from my perspective, it seems like between Starlink and some of the other things that's going on there, there's a boom that's happening, incredible wave of innovation that's happening in the satellite space. To take, I guess, a bigger step back, can you just help paint a picture for people of kind of, if you were almost an NBA student, like how you would think about the different subcomponents of the space technology sector and yeah, just help people get a better sense because I think from my naive perspective, obviously there's some of the things that are that are public are things like rocket launches and things like satellite launches, but I know there's a lot more going on and now there's sectors that are springing up to service other sectors. So can you help paint a picture there of what that looks like and how that's been evolving over the last few years? Sure. Yeah, no, it's happy to. And it's, you know, it's interesting. You can look at it from a bunch of different vantage points. Probably the easiest delineation initially is where in space we're talking about. And there's really three layers. One is so-called LEO, which is low Earth orbit. Uh, The second is GEO, which is geosynchronous Earth orbit. And the third would be deep space. Deep space would be the moon, Mars, everything in between. Almost everything happening right now is in LEO. The International Space Station is is in LEO. All the constellations being delivered right now, with the exception of the very largest telecommunications satellites, are all in LEO. So that's really where the, the action is right now. So just focusing on that for a second, the big play really is what I'll call more generally Earth observation. So because we built the elevator and we can get uh, hardware to orbit that doesn't necessarily need to be designed to last for 10 years, because if the launch cost is one-tenth the cost, you're okay with launching every couple of years different hardware, right? You can iterate much more quickly on your hardware because the cost of putting it in orbit is so much lower. So what's happening is you have massive numbers of constellations being put up and ultimately think of it as a data set. So if you think about Alphabet, Alphabet, uh, I haven't checked recently, but let's call it, it's a trillion to market cap roughly. And essentially what Alphabet has done is they've built a data set based upon known terrestrial information, and they've organized that, and they can tell you with high certainty what has occurred, right? They can generate a map, they can show you what's within that vicinity, they can give you facts and figures about all the folks and businesses and commerce, anything within that range. So it's basically known terrestrial information that is factual in nature and tells you what has happened. Well, imagine instead a database that's even more robust than the Google database that is ubiquitous, meaning it's complete information about the earth. It's persistent, meaning it's always on. It's hyperspectral, meaning you get insights from different vantage points, let's say optical, infrared, There's technology now called synthetic aperture radar, where you can actually look under clouds, uh, look underground to a a certain depth. And imagine that entire data set being fed into a cloud and that cloud being subjected to AI and other tools that we now have. And imagine that instead of that data set being historical and telling you what has happened, it's predictive and it tells you what will happen. So imagine that end state. What is that data set worth? I don't know, but it, I know it's worth more than the Google data set for sure. A few trillion, at least, of value. And the other way to think about that is we have a $75 trillion global economy, round numbers, COVID notwithstanding. 
if you had perfect real-time information about all commerce on planet Earth, could you make the economy 3% more efficient or 2% more efficient or 4% more efficient? I think, I think the obvious answer is yes. And if that's the case, then again, that's, that gets you several trillion dollars of value creation. So the reason I'm bringing all this up is this is why Amazon is building Kuiper at their constellation. It's not only for internet service, which is what the SpaceX, SpaceX Starlink constellation is about. It's about the ability to have hardware in orbit and collect data. Amazon, I should mention, Daniel, is also getting into the ground station business. So this is how you get data from space back down to the Earth and collect that. They already have the best uh, cloud in the world with AWS, and they probably have the second best AI platform behind IBM. So if you look at what they're doing, it's brilliant, right? It's capturing the entire value chain. You get mass to orbit with Blue Origin rockets. You put hardware in orbit that's either disseminating data or collecting data. You get that data back down to Earth with a ground station. You put it in a cloud. You subject it to AI. You generate products and services and insights based upon that. And that informs what hardware you you iterate to and put back in orbit. And you've captured that entire value chain, right? So this is what's happening. This is why Apple is building a constellation. This is why Facebook is rumored to be building or considering a constellation. So the large data providers see this as an opportunity. So when you think about the opportunity just with ones and zeros, because these are very capitally efficient model uh, models, I see a multi-trillion dollar opportunity in space. Mm-hmm. So that's all happening in Leo. And then, of course, within Leo, you also have, uh, which I'd love to talk more about, you know, later on, is space tourism. You know, the first private space station being built. You know, all these things happening within Leo. So just super hotbed of activity. And by the way, the the other business model and and Voyager bought a company that's the leader in in this category is we now have a space debris problem, right? Because everything in orbit is moving at, uh, you know, orbital velocity, 17,000 miles an hour. So even a small screw can take out a, a satellite very easily or the space station for that matter. So we now have a space debris problem that we need to get our arms around. So lots, lots, lots happening. And I could talk more about geo and also deep space, but really most of the activity right now is happening in low Earth orbit. It's fascinating. And you talked about, you know, as you mentioned Alphabet, you mentioned Apple, Facebook, Amazon. So maybe just expanding on that a little bit. So you're obviously focused on newer entrants into this into the space. You're focused on disruptive players that are coming in that are looking to carve out a, a niche or an area for themselves and, and expand over time. But obviously all the names you mentioned are kind of the in, incumbents and some of them are maybe a little bit familiar to the sector and some of them are obviously very new. Like even just some of those things you brought up there I had not heard of before. Who do you think is has a really interesting, well thought out strategy that's a larger incumbent that either is new to the space or familiar with the space and which one of those do you think are interesting or they're on to something where they clearly are playing a little bit of a higher level game of chess and know where this is leading longer term? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I, I would say, you know, it's interesting, even though Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, all the companies we've been talking about are incumbents within technology, they really are the upstarts within space for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think they have a mentality that's different. So maybe it's, important to talk about who the old guard is within space. 
you know, there really is an oligopoly uh, at the top, and that would be Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Airbus, and Boeing. That's really the big four, if you will, for space. And they're all great companies with great people and great leaders. And I, I know, yeah, I know all four of the CEOs of those space divisions and companies. You know, they all have good intent. They all have good ideas. It, it's not that they're somehow different humans than the, than the rest of them, but they're a little bit of a victim of circumstance. And part of the challenge is they're trapped, if I can use that word, within large defense contractor companies. Mm-hmm. And the model for defense contracting is, has been, hopefully this will change eventually, is more of a cost plus, I hate to call it a jobs program, but it really, it really is that. And so there's a disincentive to disrupt <laughs> yourself, because if you do that, all you're really doing is lowering your cost structure. And if you're lowering your cost structure, you're lowering your contract value. And if you're lowering your contract value, you're lowering your profit margin. So it's a very odd way to contract. And so I think what it leads to is inefficiency. It leads to, in my humble opinion, a lack of innovation. And it leads to not taking a lot of risks. And I think this is part of the reason why, you know, you look at ULA, one of the launch providers, that's a joint venture between Boeing and Lockheed. Terrific company. They've never had a launch failure, Daniel, never had a launch failure. So it's Six Sigma, you know, reliability, $65 million launch cost or up to $80 million launch cost. But if I'm launching, if I'm if I'm Planet, Planet is a upstart constellation satellite company based in San Francisco. Their satellites are the size of dorm refrigerators, a bit smaller than that. And they cost a couple hundred thousand dollars each. You know, wh- why do they need Six Sigma reliability? Right? They, they don't, because mm-hmm. if the launch fails, that's fine. They'll just build a few more and put it on the next rocket. So the point is, I think they've kind of designed themselves into a corner. And the reason I say all this is you have companies like Amazon or SpaceX or Apple or others coming to the to the industry with just a totally different perspective on you know how quickly you can iterate, how to innovate, what kind of risk to take, how much mm-hmm. capital to deploy. And it's really shaken things up. So, you know, I look at Amazon's model. Amazon, there's a reason why that's a trillion dollar market cap company. They are very, very, very smart people, very smart. And I think they have a value chain capture approach. And I think it's the way to win the game. And I think if you look at all the strengths that they have, they're playing to all those strengths. So I would say they'd be the top of my list. SpaceX, I mean, they're a force of nature, as we know. <laughs> but, you know, as much as I admire Elon and SpaceX, they're still a small company in the whole scheme of the world, right? Four or 5,000 employees. Most of Elon's wealth is paper wealth, unlike, you know, Bezos, which is quite a bit richer than, than anybody out there. And, and he's pretty liquid or can be because he has a publicly traded security. So I would say Jeff has got deeper pockets and I, I wouldn't bet against him. But Elon, uh, you know, outworks everybody. And, and I think he's on the right track with a lot of what he's doing. One thing that I was curious, so you have did an incredible job of fleshing out how to think about the industry based on how deep we're going into space. Can you give us a sense for the size of some of the 
technology players or some of the new disruptive players in the new space technology area. Obviously, what we've talked about most recently is some of the bigger players that they're going to be competing against. And so are you seeing like, are there well-scaled private companies that are in the space sector or is it all sort of an all or nothing game and it's a bunch of smaller players vying? Can you give us a sense for the range and the scale of some of the players in the space? Sure. Yeah, I I do think the industry lacks scale. That's the short answer, Daniel. And that's part of the reason why we built Voyager Space Holdings, which we, we can talk a bit more about. Essentially, what you have are you have a lot of highly innovative, highly creative companies that are very, very good within a narrow range of capability. But with a lot of supply chain industries, and space is a supply chain industry, it's all about assembling capability. So for example, take automotive. If you are the prime, in this case, the OEM, if you're Tesla, if you're Ford, if you're a GM, you dictate the value chain, right? Because you're selling the car, you're designing the car, and you ultimately determine buy versus build, and you determine who the supply chain providers are, and you determine who works together within that supply chain, right? So you have the lion's share of the economic value because you dictate the supply chain. It's the exact same thing within space. And so how do you mitigate that? How do you mitigate the fact that the primes, which is the term we use for the people at the very, the companies at the very top of the industry, dictate the value chain? Well, the only way around that is to assemble capability. Because the more capability you have, the more robust the missions you can bid on with the end client, which of course would in many cases be governments. And as you compete and win larger and larger missions and assignments, then you become the mini prime, if you will. And you make that decision on buy versus build and who you want to subcontract with. So the point is you want to move, you want to evolve from a commodity provider to a component provider, to a subsystem provider, to a system provider, to a platform provider, and then ultimately a mission provider. And the more you move up on that food chain, the more the value you capture. So I'd say that's the next step for the industry. We have a lot of highly capable individual companies, Mm -hmm. but not a lot of highly capable companies that are at scale that have assembled capability. And I think this is part of the reason why you see SpaceX morphing into hardware. Right? They don't want to be just a launch provider. First of all, they're, they're intent on going to Mars. Right, So put that at the front burner for now, because everything Elon does, whether it's the Boring Company or Tesla or Hyperloop, it's all tied to Mars, all of it. Every single Everything he does is tied to Mars. But putting that aside, it's about capturing more of the value chain. And that means you need to have a hardware capability. You need to have a data and analytics capability. You need to have a launch capability. So that's where I see the industry going is evolving towards more scale, but it's not scale within just a particular silo. It's scale across silos so that you have more capability and ultimately can compete for larger and more lucrative contracts. That's really what it is driving it. No, it's fascinating and it makes perfect sense. So starting from that idea, which you just did a great job of setting up, let's transition and talk about 
what led you to found Voyager Space Holdings and what you're focused on there. And I guess what, where I kind of want to start is I feel like the last answer you gave is probably some of the insight that you based the decision to go and found Voyager Space Holdings on. But is that true? And, and were there other things, other trends, other things you saw playing out? And can you both set up what Voyager Space Holdings is and, and what the mission is, but also give us a little bit of an insight into why you felt like this was the right time and why you felt like it was the moment to try to build one of those vertically integrated players. Sure. Yeah, I know. I'd love to. Yeah. So, you know, again, starting sort of where we began our conversation, I'm in the camp that is super passionate about space as a tool for transformation. So what, energi- what energizes me is getting humans into space. You know, like Jeff Bezos says, millions of people living and working in space. So mm-hmm. the way my mind works, if that's the end goal, I always think to myself, okay, what are the constraints that are holding us back from achieving that? And what are some of the accelerants that we could add to the mix that would, that would further, you know, increase our chance of success or getting there quicker. So that's the, that's the way I I think about it. And as we talked about earlier, at one time, the industry was really stuck on this early stage capital formation problem. And so that's where I really spent a lot of my time. And I think for the most part, we've solved that or, gone a long way towards solving that. Where the industry is stuck right now, in my view, is this whole notion of scaling. And in order to disrupt, fully disrupt the oligopoly at the top, we're going to need more and more highly capable new space companies that are innovative, that are creative, that are bringing to the industry all these sort of creative forces that have taken us as far as, as we've already gone. And the challenge with that is as you scale these companies, as these companies become bigger and more capable, typically they become more bureaucratic. They become more calcified is my new term I like to use. And you ultimately sort of win the battle, but lose the war. You win the battle in the sense that you've achieved scale, but you lose the war because you haven't created anything better than what exists. So the whole notion is how do you harness scale? How do you assemble capability and not stifle innovation, right? That's the problem that we were trying to solve. And what we came up with was, look, there are so many things within space or any industry, but in particular space that scale with size. Capital, of course, that's an obvious one. The bigger you are, the cheaper your your cost of capital. But many, many other things, including the client relationship management function. So all of these new space companies have clients that include NASA, the Department of Defense, the Air Force, the Space Force. So they all have client relationship management functions they need to build. That's expensive. But obviously, if they're all in the same ecosystem, that scales. Public policy scales, having a DC office. Most new space companies might have two hours a month with some outsourced provider in DC. Lockheed Martin would have 250 people in their DC office. So that's a big bridge to gap. But other things like technical areas, like uh, engineering and qualification, you know, getting components space-hardened or tested uh, to make sure they're qualified for space, base engineering for designing some of the components or, or subsystems on a particular mission, that all scales with size. All the back office, finance, administration, accounting. And oh, by the way, a lot of these founder-led technical firms it isn't the highest and best use for these founders who are brilliant, you know, in many cases, multiple PhD level brilliance 
for them to be doing back office management or business administration, right? It's not only not their highest and best use, they get no joy from that either. So the whole idea is building world-class Fortune 500 infrastructure that these entrepreneurial new space companies can plug into, all the while acquiring companies, and we're acquiring majority control over these companies, so 51% to 80% of the equity. Why not 100%? Because we want the entrepreneurs to have heavy equity in the business and benefit you know, when we double, triple, quadruple the size of the company, we want them to, to benefit from that. And we also want them to feel like owners and not employees. So leveraging the best of the entrepreneurial spirit, heavy innovation, while scaling all the things back office and front office that scale with size and screening it for three things. And, and this is critical. One is a financial screen. So we're only buying companies that are post-revenue, post-EBITDA, and post-operating cash flow. And a lot of people would say, well, that's zero companies. And the answer is actually there are thousands, thousands of companies within the space ecosystem that qualify. Thousands, which is crazy, but it's true. Second screen is what capability are we adding to our ecosystem? So if it's a better way to rivet aircraft, I could care less about that, even if it's the most profitable company and it's the best you know, acquisition you've ever seen on paper, it doesn't further our capability which is ultimately to build a company capable of delivering any mission humans can conceive. So what's the capability we're adding? And then the third, which is the most important, as you know, Daniel, being an experienced investor and entrepreneur yourself, is, is the team. Is it a team that's looking to cash out? Or is it a team saying, you know what? We have taken this company as far as we can take it. We want to get to the next level and we want to be part of something bigger and more ambitious. I guess that would be the final point. I mentioned this to a, another senior leader with, within the space industry running one of the larger, more established space companies. I said, the problem with the industry right now is the companies that have the capability don't have the ambition. And the companies that have the ambition don't have the capability. So we're going to create a company that has both. Fascinating. Fascinating. How much of your approach relies on collaboration across the companies and across the teams? And how much of it is more of just a, an ecosystem approach where it's a bunch of individual players, you're not necessarily asking or hoping or expecting that they'll work together. But how does that play out? And how does that show up? And what are some of your thoughts there about how that should work? Right. Yeah, no, great questions. And that that's really the crux of it is how do you get independent entrepreneurial in many cases, very self-confident founders to work together. And I think ultimately, you know, space is interesting. I think it, it is unique compared to other industries. A lot of the founders aren't super motivated by money or other sort of status symbols of glory. They're more motivated by the interesting elements of the projects they work on. So for example, the first company we bought, Altius, they're all about on what we call on-orbit servicing. So these, these are building robotics in space to clean up space debris or to service other satellites that are already in orbit, whether that's to raise their orbit, deorbit them, refuel them, upgrade them, whatever the case may be. That's what they're all about. They're all about that. And, and the founder, John Goff, who you know, went away to college to study engineering, I think at age 14, if I'm not mistaken. So it's just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mind. The fact now that he's part of an ecosystem and the second company we bought is all about extracting oxygen from moon soil and being able to do really creative science on the moon 
to create resources from existing materials in, uh, on the moon to extract those resources so that you don't have to take everything with you on a moon mission. Well, those two companies are already in collaboration. There's a part of that moon mission coming down the pike called the Human Lander System. The first company, Altius, has already won that contract. The second company we acquired, Pioneer, they've won the contract for what's called ISRU, in situ resource utilization. Well, those two, co- those two contracts are linked because part of what you're going to des- design the human lander system to is going to be based upon what resources you think are going to be available when you land. And part of what you're going to focus ISRU on is going to be based upon what capabilities that human lander system may or may not have. So already you have a contract there that, that's linked and already those two entrepreneurs are working together and their teams are working together to make both of those missions even more successful than they would be otherwise. So that's just a very simple example. And it's really easy to get people to collaborate when it's right at that overlap between their passion and the capability that, that their passion opens up for their partner. And that's just one simple example, but they're are countless others. And imagine instead of having three portfolio companies or four portfolio companies, you have 15. Imagine all the intersections that can be generated there. Imagine all the contracts you can now bid on where any one company wouldn't have the capability of bidding on it. But now you've assembled enough capability that you can bid on some really interesting missions. So you're striking at the key issue, which is how do you get people to collaborate and play nice? And within any company, whether you own it or or not, or whether they're entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, that's always the issue. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of it has to do with the type of people. That's why I said our most important screen is the team, right? You don't want any folks on your team that, that aren't willing to collaborate or aren't motivated by that level of synergy. But then I think it's also the way you incent people. And again, this goes back to why we would insist that our teams have heavy equity in their businesses mm-hmm. so they benefit from that. So It's something that's very challenging, but I also think that's a barrier of entry for us as well. You know, I was talking to a close friend and he said, Dylan, what you're proposing is very, very difficult to achieve. And I said, I'm counting on that. I'm counting on that. I hope it's difficult because that means that we're going to, when we, when we do it, we're going to be that much further ahead of everybody else. No, that's such a great quote. And what you're doing is an age-old problem, like you said, which is it's ultimately at the end of the day an incentives alignment problem. And it does exist, you know, whether they're companies that are just in loose orbit or whether it's a team of companies that has to work really closely together. And so that makes a ton of sense. It almost sounds like in some ways what you're building is maybe a modern Xerox lab or Xerox park Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and just assembling an incredible group of minds that are really the best of the best in very different spaces and then teeing up problems where it's a necessity and where they're all going to benefit by working together really, really, really closely. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about what you just announced yesterday, which was, I'll try to uh, describe it as best I understand it. And I love for you to, to take it from there and, and flesh it out a little bit more. But it sounds like at the end of the day, sort of an intellectual property exchange where it's an open marketplace where anyone can take IP and, and put it up for sale and anyone looking for IP 
can go and be able to acquire the intellectual property they need. And, and what seems fascinating about it, it seems at the end of the day, like a, a lot of the bottlenecks in this space are, are probably intellectual property related. And that generally, I bet it would benefit all players to have free and open access, you know, on equitable terms where people are getting compensated, but free and equitable access. And I'm guessing that given what some of what we've talked about, just that the space probably hasn't matured to that level yet. But talk a little bit about what that is, what excited you about that space, and how you were able to kind of spin this marketplace up. Because obviously, there's it's a two-sided marketplace. You have to have both demand and supply. So I'd love to dive in there and know a little bit more. Yeah, sure. You know, it's super exciting. So again, back to this whole notion of how do you facilitate growth of the industry, right? Which is really sort of where we start our thinking. One of the frustrations that I have is the industry lacks standards. So there's not a standard satellite size or envelope. There's not standard electronics or a bus system. There's not a standard rocket. There's not a standard really anything, right? And, you know, if you think of yourself as CEO of the industry, just thought experiment, and you think about all the innovation that happens, you know, companies that appear, four or five people leave Boeing, start a company, create some great IP for whatever reason, they can't get enough early stage financing or they run out of money, they go back to work at Boeing. Well, that IP, all that innovation is is now under a rock somewhere that no one really knows about. And so trying to solve for this whole notion of standards, well, standards requires a conversation about what the best ideas are, but that presupposes that you know what all those ideas happen to be. And so you got to turn over a lot of rocks in order to determine that. Put that aside for a second. We also have a notoriously bureaucratic IP transfer mechanism within NASA, the DOD, DARPA, you name it. And so the whole notion was, how do we better understand what IP is available out there turn over those rocks and at least shine light on what that IP is. And then once that IP is known, facilitate commerce around that IP, whether it's licensing arrangements or you know outright purchase and sales, but towards an end game where that end game is, let's have a conversation about what the best ideas are so we can orient as an industry around some of these standards. Because standards, you know, a lack of standards is just a so-called deadweight loss within the economic ecosystem of the industry, right? Everyone loses, theoretically, with that. Yeah, you know, imagine the rail system without, uh, you know, standard gauge. I joke with folks about, you know, imagine uh, pre-COVID, every hotel you go to around the world has a different Wi-Fi protocol, right? Just imagine that world. And that's, that's the world we're in within space. So that's the whole notion with the IP exchange. And it's been shocking, the reception it's received. It's really far exceeded our expectations. So it tells me we have a good idea. And I think, you know, from a Voyager standpoint, it's also good to be at the nexus, right? If, if we want to position ourselves as the most innovative space company, you know, at the forefront of, of entrepreneurial innovation, having this exchange within our ecosystem, I think obviously serves our purposes as well. But it really was more about how do we help the industry identify the best ideas and ultimately coalesce around standards. That makes, yeah, that makes complete sense. I want to go back to something that you touched on, just the importance 
in the space that you're in of having an office in Washington, D.C. and, you know, engaging with politicians and, and people at the highest levels of government that there. And what I want to explore is, I think when most people think about that, they immediately think of lobbying or have a negative reaction of like, oh, you know, that's probably, uh, of course, that makes sense that some of the larger players have 250 people in that office. And I bet what they're doing is just working to kind of stifle competition and, and bolster up their position in the market and make sure that policy gets shaped to suit them. Um, that's clearly not what you're doing. So can you talk a little bit about why that's so important and the way that you think about that and the way that you approach that? Yeah. I mean, I look at it as one part client relationship management, for lack of a, a better word. So, I mean, who are the clients? The clients are NASA, NOAA. Those would be considered civil space. The Department of Defense, and that's both known budget and what they call black budget, which is the budget that nobody knows about. And within Department of Defense, of course, you have striations between Air Force, you know, Army. Now, of course, we have the Space Force and everything in, in between. And then, of course, you have commercial space, commercial space being the phenomenon that's really fastest growing right now. So D.C. is an important market for all those reasons. It's a hotbed of commercial space activity because a lot of companies are based there. Obviously, the DOD is all the infrastructures there. And NASA's based there, et cetera, et cetera. So you definitely need a client relationship management function. But the second really gets at the, the heart of the matter, which is what, what is it you're trying to advocate for? From our vantage point, it's really more about advocating for opening up commerce, mm -hmm. right? So you, you alluded earlier that the perception might be anti-competitive sort of lobbying. And I, I think that is a strategy in D.C., right? Let's join the country club and then keep everyone else from joining, right? Close the door behind you. I think that is an element. With, with us, it's the exact opposite. It's more, how do we convince the government that commercial space is a great thing for the country and for the world? And how do we convince the federal government to work with us to facilitate commerce? For example, we worked you know, years ago, is four years ago now on the Space Act, Space Act uh, sort of opened up and reimagined uh, space resources and who could lay claim to space-based resources and how that ownership would work. Unfortunately, China is not a party to that agreement. So you could argue that an agreement that is U.S. only, you know, doesn't have enough teeth in it. It, it needs to be more of a U.N. level agreement. But notwithstanding that, the whole purpose of that bill was to educate Congress and the courts and, and others that, look, commercial space is happening. And to have a Cold War era, 1950s, 60s treaty govern space commerce doesn't make a lot of sense. We need to modernize that policy. So that's really where we're focused. Uh, for example, you know, back to space debris, Altius, one of the companies we own, uh, they've developed this technology that allows you to capture a satellite in orbit. It's basically a magnetic lock. And so if the satellite has this female adapter on its side, the male adapter on the satellite basically will turn on its magnet and it will orient the satellite towards that magnet and, and they'll couple, which is a lot more difficult than it sounds because these satellites are often spinning. They're moving at 17,000 miles an hour, like we talked about before. But if you have no way to capture them, then you have no way to deorbit them or to raise their orbit or refuel them or you know manipulate them in any way. And so one of the things that we think is important is that hardware, 
when it's launched, has some mechanism to allow you to capture the satellite. We think that's important. So we'll, you know, that will be something that we're going to be advocating for. Other people might advocate for something slightly different than that. But I think that's ultimately good for the industry because it's classic tragedy of the commons, right? You and I could build a constellation tomorrow, put up some satellites. Our incremental risk of running into something is pretty low. But if everyone has that vantage point and everyone puts up satellites, then at the end of the day, you could have a situation where nobody is safe at the end of the day. So that those are the kinds of things that we're going to be working towards. Yeah, and clearly space debris is just on a path, I would imagine, to grow exponentially. So that's a problem to start thinking about and, and get ahead of now. For sure. But I'd love to explore a little bit more. Like, what are the areas you think are super fascinating? And, you know, I don't want to give away any secrets, but talk about that in a little bit of a, a high-level way. And then how have you guys thought about that acquisition process? And if you can walk us through some of the steps there, I think it's something people would find fascinating. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of areas that we're interested in, uh, we've touched on a couple of them, but I'll, I'll just mention those and, and expand on a couple perhaps. So one is, you know, we talked about building the elevator, right? So everything in the last 10 years has been about building a capability to get mass to orbit. The next generation in my mind is about manipulating mass in orbit. And so what do I mean by that? I think part of it is the ability to service or manipulate satellites in orbit. Great startup company that uh, I think highly of called Orbit Fab. And they're they're too early for Voyager right now to be acquired because they're they're in startup mode, but they're building gas stations in space, for lack of a better word. So imagine if you could refuel a satellite in space, then not only does it reduce the size of the satellite that you're sending up, because all satellites are sent with a lifetime of fuel on board today, but allows you to start thinking about actual infrastructure in space, right? And actual commerce in space where things are happening in space as opposed to purpose-built hardware going up and never coming back or never changing once it's up there. So the whole on-orbit servicing is is a huge area. Uh, What that leads to is another area very interested in, which is space-based manufacturing, which we could spend a ton of time talking about, but there are some fascinating uh, applications for space-based manufacturing. And imagine, you know, there, there was a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jerry O'Neill, who is a Princeton professor, who's really seen by many as the godfather of, of modern new space. He inspired Jeff Bezos. He inspired Peter Diamandis. He inspired Rick Tumlinson. Princeton professor died, died a bit too young of leukemia. In fact, fun fun fact, the reason Bezos went to Princeton was because Jerry O'Neill was a professor at Princeton. And in Jeff Bezos's high school valedictorian speech, he talked about how influential Jerry O'Neill was and the book he wrote called The High Frontier was to his thinking. And he said, I'm going to go make a bunch of money in business. And once I do that, I'm going to implement this book and build a space company. Apparently, that's what he said when he was 17 in his high school valedictorian speech. So the reason I mention all that is Jerry's vision is imagine all heavy industry is not on Earth. Imagine all heavy industry is in space. It's in free space. And the Earth is like a national park, if you will. It's an oasis. You know, that, that's, that's a pretty cool vision. You know, whether that's practical or not anytime soon, who knows. But so space-based manufacturing captures the imagination. I think there's some real teeth with that now in terms of capability. The other one I, I really like, Daniel, is space-based energy. There's unlimited energy in space, 
right? The sun's right there. <laughs> There's no atmosphere. Solar works really, really, really well. So it's all a matter of distributing power in space. There are models that would allow you to actually send energy back from space to Earth, you know, whether it's via laser or via microwaves. But certainly within space or distributing power to the moon, for example, that's all technically feasible. So very, very interested in those models as well. And then on the Earth observation side, so that these are all the constellations going up, climate change and weather. That's really where we're very focused right now. Super interesting. I think our climate science is very mediocre. And it, it's not for a lack of trying. It's really because that climate data hasn't been privatized or commercialized. So we're now seeing the advent of a lot of commercial weather satellite companies. So that means the data is going to be better. And with better data, you get better models. And with better models, you get better recommendations. So we're super excited about that. So on the diligence process, just briefly on that, first of all, it's very difficult in COVID times. Obviously, you can't do a lot of the things that you would do in a normal world, you know, getting all the teams together in the same room for an extended period of time. But we're really diligencing heavily the tech. If we don't understand it, we're not gonna we're not gonna buy it. Understanding is there a moat around the tech or is there if there's not a moat around it, is there enough of a head start that you can innovate your way into a moat? And then ultimately, what does the team look like? You know, is that team actually capable of taking product version 2.0 to 3.0 or 4.0? Do they have the imagination? Do they have the technical capability to iterate? Because as Elon has said, at least I heard him say recently, and I think, I think Bezos has said this too, focus exclusively on the product, right? At the end of the day, the product is what really matters because that's, that's what's going to drive value. In space, that is very much the case, right? Without a product that's technically viable and differentiated from what else is out there, it's very difficult for salesmanship to win the day, right? Because it, it's just the stakes are too high. So you really need to focus on the product. So we spend a lot of time in technical due diligence. No, that's super interesting. And it sounds like part of what you're likely underwriting is since you're focused on, you're focused on companies that have hit some really significant milestones. So clearly they've solved the zero to one problem of taking something from an idea to taking something to that is something that has initial traction where the economics are starting to work. And then you are making a bet there that they can take it and scale it. And so part of that underwriting sounds like, you know, you're looking at teams that have solved that zero to one problem and making sure that that they can be in it for the long haul and they can take this. And and I refer to that sometimes in the best term that I've come up with is just trying to create a team and trying to find a team that can do repeatably excellent work where, you know, I think it's relatively easy once you have enough experience, you know, due diligence in companies or in some of the work I've done previously where you're working with design and product and engineering teams, I think it, you find out in time that it's relatively easy to kind of strike gold once in a while. And it's very, very, very difficult to be able to do that in a reliable, consistent, and really exceptional way. So that's fascinating. 
So clearly, a lot of the customers for space technology, it sounds like we're, we are seeing a boom where there, people are realizing, people are building, people are seeing the commercial and capitalistic potential of space. But obviously, the other big thing that's going on, which is a little bit under the surface, is that countries around the world, and obviously the U.S., especially with Space Force, are focusing on space both for defensive and offensive capabilities. What is interesting there? What scares you there? And how do you think about how you want to engage there on whether it's with the defense sector or whether it's with kind of private, more capital kind of focused companies? Right. Well, it's a great question. And, you know, given our conversation earlier, I think it won't be a surprise that I'm more from the camp that says space is a uniter, not a divider, that space allows humans to be aware of the fact that we have 99.999999% in common and we we tussle or tussle over the you know the minor differences. So I'm definitely from that camp. That being said, there are certain practicalities in the world and one of which is you've got the rise of China and you have essentially a new cold war emerging between China and the US. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be backers of the US model and there's going to be backers of the Chinese model. That ship has sailed, in my view, and it's a very real issue. And we have now hypersonics that and offensive capabilities in space where, you know, someone theoretically could take out the GPS constellation, as an example, which would be devastating to global commerce. So, I mean, there, there are some very real threats out there. China's space capability has shocked me. Daniel, I, I'm rarely shocked by anything in space, but if I look at how far they've come in five years, I'm astonished. I'm astonished. I mean, they're going to do the most ambitious Mars mission ever done, you know, the, what they just launched here in, in July. Now, whether they pull it off or not, we'll see, but they're doing a orbiter, a lander, and a rover all combined in one mission, which has never been done before. So the point is their, their capability is very strong. I'd still put them probably fourth behind the US, ESA, and Japan, but that's coming from nowhere, essentially. So I, I think there very are, are very real issues around militarization of space. You know, I'm a bit, uh, I have uh, some friends that I admire within the space industry that are more philosophers, and we founded a space philosophy site where people can kind of post content, and I wrote a small piece for that. And the question I posed was, or the question I, I guess I asked was, space will be defined by what happens first, the first human born in space or the first combat fatality in space. And I think that's the way I frame it. You know, what, what's going to, what's our destiny? What, one of those two things will happen first, which one's it going to be? And so, you know, I think, like I said, there, there are practicalities. U.S. and China are going to be a conflict with or without space. It's unrealistic, I think, to assume that that conflict will only happen on the on terra firma and not in space. So I think we are headed for a future where there is going to be space-based conflict, but I just hope that doesn't define what space is about. That's, that's really, if I could shape anything, it would be to really keep space more as a canvas that we can paint our future on and not just a copy-paste of what we currently have. Yeah, I love that. Going full circle to 
what you started out the conversation with. Mm -hmm. You know, as we've talked about, there's a giant boom in optimism, interest, and excitement around space. So for people who are listening, who are similarly fascinated by space, what are some books or talks? What are some that you think of as are maybe from a few decades ago that are this kind of, I don't know, just vivid, optimistic, and exciting kind of picture of what space can become? And what are some more recent things that you've been reading and that have captured your attention in the space? Yeah, no, for sure. So I think in terms of kind of how we got to where we are, I mentioned Gerard K. O'Neill before, uh, so-called Jerry O'Neill. He wrote a book called The High Frontier. I'd highly recommend picking that up. If you have a real interest in sort of settlement and infrastructure in space, he really wrote the book on that. There is going to be a movie coming out on his life uh, released this fall to either Netflix or Amazon. So I would definitely watch that. I think people will be fascinated. Uh, Bezos is in that movie. So is so is Elon. So I think that's worth watching. You know, in terms of you know sites out there, there there are a lot of organizations that I think people could get plugged into. National Space Society, that's the one uh, led by Bill Nye. That's very interesting. I founded one uh, called Space for Humanity, which is I think probably second only to Space Society in membership now. So that, that's worth checking out. That's all about democratizing space. The thing I like about Space for Humanity is they cover all the launch, the major launches with live streams. So that could be interesting to folks. There's some really good books coming out that are really about the space race. The lead reporter, Christian Davenport at the Washington Post, wrote a book called Space Barons, which is about sort of the advent of the, the billionaire rocket club, if you will. That's worth reading. Good friend of mine, Robert Jacobson, has written a book called Space is Open for Business, which I, I was a pre-reader for that's coming out in a couple of weeks. So I'd recommend that. You know, I think those are some of the highlights, but you know, there are several sort of notable space figures that have either personal websites or, you know, blog on these topics. You know, certainly if they, they come to my personal website, I can and, and put in a request, I can point them in the right direction. You know, typically space is one of those industries where everyone's sort of one degree of separation away. So if I can be helpful to anybody in terms of getting connected in the industry, I'd be very happy to do that. Oh, that's wonderful. And we'll share all the ways that people could find you. I was just going to share one book that, and I'm curious, you know, you talked about obviously at an early age being really captivated by Star Trek and part of space that I find fascinating. And I think the, the way a lot of people get connected to it initially is more through science fiction and the stories that are kind of happen, happen in space. And there was a book I read recently, I read it last year and I admittedly don't read much fiction. I'm trying to improve in that area. But this book I just thought was fascinating. It covers quantum technology and how that can play out in the future. It covers what the space race could look like, say, 10 years from now between the U.S. and China. And it's a book called Red Moon, and it's written by Kim Stanley Robinson. I listened to it on Audible. The Audible version of it's incredible. Do you have any similar just like stories that you love that are more based in space? So it's obviously going to be less, probably more fiction, less nonfiction. But do you have anything there that you found really interesting? Yeah, I have to pick up Red Moon. That sounds great. <laughs> you know, I, there's a lot of classics out there. If you haven't read the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov, highly, highly, highly recommend that. I think anything by Robert Heinlein <laughs> is <laughs> is sort of top of mind with, with space aficionados as well. And then Arthur C. Clarke. That's really the trifecta or, or the holy trinity, if you will, of, of science fiction. 
So I'd recommend anything by any of those authors. Those really, I think, capture the imagination around the space industry and sort of what might be possible. All that being said, just there's some great books by astronauts. I mentioned earlier Frank White, who wrote The Overview Effect. Highly recommend that. That's more of a case study of the psychology of space. But there are several astronauts. Ron Guerin is one of my favorites, who's written a book called The Orbital Perspective, again, about this transformation. Scott Perizinski, who's on the board of Voyager, wrote a great book about sort of the innovative nature of being an astronaut and how they see the world. So, I mean, there, there's there's some great, what I would call handbooks, if you will, for why space is important, why it matters, and how it transforms people that I would also recommend. For anyone that's listening that wants to get in touch with you, what are all the places you would send them to where they can follow along with what you're interested in and what you're kind of exploring or places where they could connect with you and reach out if they have an opportunity or they think there's some sort of a fit there? Yeah, sure. So I think probably the best place to go would be my personal website, which is dylantaylor.org. They can drop me a a note on there. There's an information request and it has links to pretty much everything I'm involved in. So I think ultimately that's probably the best gateway. And then certainly I'm active on Twitter and Instagram primarily and also LinkedIn. So they can find me there if that's easier for them. But I, I would I would say the best place is dylantaylor.org. And where can people go to find out more about Voyager Space Holdings? Sure. The website is voyagerspaceholdings.com. There's also a link on my personal website to that, but that's our gateway. And certainly we have a, once you're on that site, if you want to be part of our newsletter or distribution list, happy to, happy to plug you into that as well. We're, we're making pretty frequent announcements just because we have so much activity and, you know, anticipate announcing another acquisition here pretty soon as well. So very happy to add people to the list there. That's exciting. So one parting question, and I'm going to try to steal this, but maybe do it in a little bit of an interesting way. So yeah, maybe to share a little bit of kind of my, a little bit of my story. Like I went to space camp when I was young and and I was similarly enraptured by space. And for a period of time, I really wanted to be an astronaut. And as I got older, that dream didn't quite seem like the path I wanted to pursue. But for people, you know, who are young that are super interested in space, what would you share? What would you ask of them? What would you tell them that where your hopes and your dreams for where space can go? Oh, yeah. Well, look, I think, first of all, no matter what your skill set is or what your fundamental ambition is for a vocation, gone are the days, in my view, where you have to be, you know, six foot two, white male fighter pilot to go to space. That's totally changed. It's already changed and it's going to be further disrupted. Space is going to need artists. Space is going to need every background you can think of. We're going to open up space tourism probably later this year or early 2021. It will be an everyday occurrence that you're going to know somebody who's been to space, you know, here in two or three years. And as that price point gets lower and lower and we build more infrastructure in space, more and more people will will have the opportunity to go. So I would say you can have your cake and eat it too. You don't have to study a technical subject if that's not something you're super interested in. You can be passionate about space and study art. You can be passionate about space and take a non-traditional path uh, to living and working in space. So I would say just just get plugged in, you know, make sure that you're sort of aware of what the happenings are. Uh, find a mentor. I'm a huge believer, at Daniel, in mentorship. And obviously I can't 
personally mentor everybody, but if you reach out to me, I'll try to guide you in the right direction, at least in terms of identifying somebody. But I think that's critically important is to find someone within the industry that can take you under their wing and show you the ropes and get you introduced and plugged in as, as I did. I mean, Eric Anderson served that function for me. So I think it's, I think it's really important to approach it that way. But I think the general theme I want to, I want to make is space will not be a domain that's separate and distinct from society. It will be society, right? I tell people everyone's in the space industry. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> right. So if you're passionate about it, get really good at whatever, you know, your skill set is or whatever you have ambition for, and then figure out a way to plug that into what's happening in space. That would be my recommendation. Yeah, that's incredible advice. Dylan, we've covered so much. This has just been incredible for me to <laughs> get to sit here and listen to this whole interview. So thank you so much for the time. Thank you. thank you so much for being so open and generous about everything that you've studied and learned about the space. And this has been a real treat. My pleasure, Daniel. Thank you. It's been an honor. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. For show notes, including links to anything and everything mentioned in this episode, please go to outliers.fm. If you enjoyed this episode, sign up for my weekly newsletter. You'll be the first to hear about new episodes before they're released, and you'll get the best quotes, themes, and ideas from each episode in a weekly update I call Inside the Episode. To sign up for that, just go to outliers.fm slash newsletter. Just two more things before you take off. Number one, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in iTunes. My amazing team and I invest countless hours planning, researching, and editing each episode because we want all of them to be amazing. And we hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, please consider taking 30 seconds to leave a short review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Reviews are crucial in helping us get the best guests and helping more people find outliers. So if you have 30 seconds, please take a moment and leave a short review. Thank you so much. Number two, if you haven't already, sign up for my Friday Five newsletter. Each Friday, you'll get a short email where I share the coolest things that I've been using, loving, and pondering each week. Those include new products I'm trying, supplements I'm experimenting with, people I've been studying, books and articles I've been enjoying, and so much more. It's super short, it's filled with awesome and interesting stuff, and it's a great way to get inspired each week as you head into the weekend. To get access, go to friday5.email. That's F-R-I-D-A-Y-F-I-V-E dot email. Thank you so much. <laughs>